Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Eric LeMay, and you're listening to the Literature Channel on the New Books Network. Today, I speak with Hilary Plum. She's the author of Watchfires, which isn't so much a book as an exploratory biopsy of our body politic and our collective psyche. Plum examines our moment at the cellular level, whether that's a cancerous cell or a terrorist cell, with the aim of understanding What's happened to us in the Iraq War, in the attacks on 9-11, at the Boston Marathon bombings, or in the time out of time we experience when we suffer from chronic illness? How do we make sense of a global world where drones, autoimmune disease, migrants, suicide, and mass violence all feel interconnected? That's exactly what Plum sets out to do. In prose as keen and incisive as a scalpel, She locates and exposes the malignancies of our time. She doesn't offer a cure, who could, but she gives us a brilliant diagnosis of how deeply the dis-ease and diseases from which we suffer run. Hilary Plum, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. So you have a couple of books out in the, the last couple of years. One's called Watchfires and one is called Strawberry Fields. And I hope we get a chance to talk about them all. This interview is going to center on Watchfires, which is an extraordinary book. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your first novel, because it, it figures in in a prominent way to Watchfires. Yeah, I think those first three books to me kind of belong together. Um, the two novels, they drag them through the streets and Strawberry Fields and then the kind of book length essay, Watchfires. Um, so they, they Dragged Them Through the Streets came out in 2013. Um, imagines a kind of contemporary weather underground um, protesting the war in Iraq by setting off small, small bombs. Um, and, you know, they're sort of uh, futile, um, but, but succeed in maybe killing one of the activists involved in those bombings. Um, and I, think about that novel overtly in Watchfires because Watchfires is um, kind of centered on the Boston Marathon bombing, um, which had, you know, some kind of echo with, I guess, like the plot of that book, but maybe more so with um, some of the thoughts and, and questions uh, around the book. So at, at the time of the Boston Marathon bombing, as I, as I talk about in Watchfires, a few friends sort of started writing me, um, kind of thinking about those echoes. Um, and so I, I brought that into the book. Um, you know, all three of those books are really thinking about um, maybe ethics and experiences and practices of reading, um, and in particular, reading journalism and um, reportage of the of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and other events um, that get described in terms of the so-called global war on terror. So the kind of rhetorics um, of that war um, and and the events of it. So 
in the first, and they drive them through the streets, there's kind of five characters who are interacting with journalism and coverage of that war and feeling kind of inspired into action at the same time that they don't really know what form that action could or should take. And they end up, you know, in a uh, conflicted ethical position, right, um, by by turning to a form of violent protest. Um, and so you know, then the other two books maybe look at some of those questions, I would say, in like each in different but related ways, trying to think about um, the experience of reading the news and what, how we understand that, um, that experience, how, how do do we read the news? What sort of knowledge do we gain from it? What sort of knowledge do we think we gain from it? What do we do with that knowledge? What should we do with it? So I think that those three books kind of are maybe in an an entangled way to try to look at some of those questions, um, you know, both in my own life and I hope in some way more broadly. If we turn to Watchfires and we think about it as in some way a response to and a reckoning with journalism and sort of the, the way that information and ethical and political issues get dealt with in the public sphere could you describe what what the project of this book tries to do in terms of its mode? What kind of what kind of literature are you trying to write? For it certainly is not an echo of what's going on in contemporary journalism. It's it's doing something much different. So I mean, Watchfires has a um, has has a real aspect of memoir, um, and in ways is an illness memoir, uh, and is also trying to maybe create. Um, or follow some other works in, in creating alternative forms of the illness memoir. Um, and so it's looking at some experiences of illness that I had and that occurred in my family, in particular, um, my husband's cancer, um, and looking at those alongside or using them as lenses to look at the way that illness is used as a metaphor in our um, political life, right? So maybe illnesses of the body and of the body politics and how um how illness functions as a metaphor, uh, in both, you know, personal terms, the illnesses we have become metaphors of themselves in some way. And then in political terms, some of our political problems get recast as illness. And I wanted to see if looking at those really intimate private experiences with, you know, um, which we really struggle to put into any kind of language or narrative, um, you know, even in order to get treatment for them, right. Uh, if there's a way to look at those that could help us look at our our larger, you know, shared public moment and our shared histories, um, which I guess it's kind of like that was the hope of the project is that somehow if you can find a way to, um, you know, that there might be a, a path between an understanding of one's most private experiences and an understanding of something about um, our larger historical moment and how it's working. And um, so, oh, go ahead. <laughs> For me, this is the the brilliance of the book, the, its power. And so, you know, I would applaud, but I think I would burst some eardrums of people listening out here. But yes, right, we're, we're all in this public moment of trying to get our head around so many difficult and seemingly unending and unraveling issues at the same time that we're reckoning with our own private experiences. And I would just like to do a kind of little list of the sorts of things that you take up in this book. Autoimmune disease, 
the current war without end, the Arab Spring, the Occupy movement, veteran suicide, your partner's cancer, the act of caretaking, drone warfare, terrorism, anorexia, suicide, the detective novel, the Vietnam War, the manhunt for the bombers after the Boston bombing. Can you give us a little sense of of how all of that comes together or how it was even possible to think so widely and so intimately at the same time? Because I think this is this is the sort of narrative we're looking for right now is is something that can look across the ocean and look at our most intimate experiences and somehow make sense of them. It's wonderful. Well, thank you. I mean, thanks for that kind summary. And it's, you know, it's um, always gratifying if, if it feels like, you know, the connections one was trying to make, like did some work for someone, you know, like, you know, what is, what is the best way to describe them? I mean, I was thinking about or sort of attending to ways that, um, you know, terrorism kind of in quotations was often described as, as a cancer. Um, and then maybe looking at that metaphor a little bit and some ways that had been used or ways that might be working and then trying to think about terror as instead, um, or maybe so-called terror, I, you know, always kind of putting that word in, in quotes might, um, be better thought of in, in autoimmune terms. Um, and there's, I'm not sure if the book, I don't think the book ever refers to it directly, although it appears maybe in the, in the notes or something. There's an interview um, that uh, Derrida gave right after September 11th that kind of thinks about suicidal autoimmunitary war, um, and in particular the, the attacks of September 11th as, as um, in those terms, kind of as arising out of um, a complexly interconnected and interdependent history between um, the U.S., you know, the Cold War and post-Cold War dynamics, Bin Laden, all of these things kind of coming together. Um, and so I was looking at that alongside um, the actual cancer that my husband was having and um, and some experiences I had of illness um, that changed so much depending on how you know, they, they weren't very well named, you know, sort of like mysterious, undiagnosed, and they changed a lot depending on how you might name them, you know, like how you understood them or tried to live them seemed to change with the name, you know, even though you think like they shouldn't. And I also was thinking, as you mentioned about anorexia, and maybe anorexia as a sort of form, <laughs> um, like a form of, of terror, you uh, or a kind of critique that maybe could be thought of that way. Um, and the book kind of fleshes that idea out a little more. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so, so what do you, so what do we gain by, by thinking of terrorism in terms of autoimmune disease or autoimmune disease in terms of terrorism? You know, even as you're, you're, you're questioning the extent to which the metaphor is useful, but we see it play out in... At some point, I'm going to ask you about the the genre as you imagine it in the the memoir, the cultural criticism in the book. Um, and I'm just, you know, I could imagine a listener thinking, so when we bring these two things together, what do they illuminate that we might not have seen if we didn't? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the question um, that's at stake and and or what's at stake in the question of of sort of like autoimmune disease or um, also is that kind of self other distinction. So sort of immediately, maybe if you, um, 
when I think about terror in terms of autoimmune disease, it puts some of those, you know, it, it challenges that self other distinction that had been being relied upon. Um, you know, it's so funny about writing books because it's like, <laughs> there's such a like slow, long form of thinking. And then it's like in order to <laughs> answer any question about them requires the whole book or something, you know? So I was just like, what is the answer? And I was like, I guess I, I guess the answer is just the whole thing all over again. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I think, um, maybe an, an efficient way to say it is that so much of the coverage of terrorism and the way that the media and, um, political leaders have, um, activated and, and mobilized that as a concept does rely on a lot of us them thinking right um a lot of self other distinctions so um getting at like using that idea of autoimmune disease um is a way of challenging that um just in a basic way challenging that us them distinction um i think one of the the more powerful questions you explore is whether or not the zernayev brothers are american terrorists whether we can whether that us them distinction, the self other distinction can hold there. And if they are indeed American terrorists, what does that mean? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, the Sarnayev brothers get narrated a lot of ways. And, and so as a case study, they sort of show the different kind of values of, of <laughs> um, manifesting in those types of narration. Right. So um, initially they're seen in terms of, um, you know, their Muslim identity and their affiliations with Al Qaeda. And like, were they reading this or that publication online? Were they radicalized? You know, was um, Terrell and I radicalized abroad? Um, all of these types of questions. And, and then that also sort of later is narrated relatedly, but differently because the Boston Marathon bombings are kind of then fit into a narrative of some some ISIS related attacks that happen in the next couple of years afterward even though that's not what they were right they st- they start to like get folded into that story or um seem like a a prelude into that story in some way so you can see some different things happening there but you also have uh you know the Boston Globe kind of a sometime after um I want to say you know I don't, I don't quite have this on hand but um quite a full year after the attacks did a really long in-depth follow-up that was just thinking about um, questions of mental illness and and treatment um, and sort of family dynamics um, and uh, like the particular struggles of the Sarnayev family um, in in immigrating and so they were really telling that story kind of a different way in a way that made it closer to ways that mass shooters in the U.S. get talked about in terms of mental illness. And more recently, right, we start to have, we're starting to have a fuller conversation about, you know, racism and uh, those, the way that, you know, white male um, mass shooters are talked about versus are, are framed as being ill rather than, than being sources of terror or violence. So, um, we, we were seeing that conversation start to shift and, and maybe start to uh, acknowledge the kind of, you know, institutional racism in the media that views those, you know, kind of views those individuals as individuals and as ill and kind of um, sees them that way rather than viewing them as maybe belonging to a general ideology um, and, and acting in ways that are connected to one another, which is how other forms of terror get talked about, you know, even when the connections are very loose and via the internet, which is true for a lot of mass shooters. So um, 
Yeah. All of that is sort of just like a, a way to um, think about, you know, what, what, what cultural values we see happening as, as the Sarnai brothers get, get narrated and get grappled with as a phenomenon and get understood and framed um, and sort of what they're used as an example of and what people want us to do with that, you know, and for the most part, right after the bombings, it was about, you know, they were folded into to the war on terror and, and used as an example of this kind of coming home, et cetera, even though, you know, as your question gets at, we could think of them as, as um, very much an Ameri- a phenomenon of American violence um, and a response to American violence. You know, the only, you know, they never really gave any, they don't really have much of an ideology. They never really said much about why they did it. The only, you know, the only thing they really had to say was a sort of opposition to the war in Iraq, um, you know, an act of very profound, large scale American violence, um, that war. So, you know, that's, if we start the conversation there, you know, where does it, where does it go? And I think one of the, the interesting things about the book, in fact, one of the, the surprising and for me, daring things about the book um, is that you also engage in creating a narrative around the brothers, around Joe Hark. Tell us a little bit about what happens in the second part of the book. Um, So the first part, just to set it up for readers, or you don't want to do that? Oh, yeah. Um. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, I, I just the the first part of the book is the major part of the book um, in terms of length. Um, it's this crystalline, clear, multi-genreic essay that's blending together a lot of the questions that we've been talking about. Um, that's working as an illness metaphor and as political commentary, um, and moving back and forth through different domains and questions, and then. Part one ends at what could be a book in and of itself, and then section two opens in a very different mode. It's uh, so the book is nonfiction, and the, as you said, that long you know that the major part of the book is a long essay that is nonfictional, and then there's a little fictional kind of coda, um, and that you know that is a series of kind of dialogues with Jahar Sarnayev, and they're made up, right? Um, and I guess I was interested in well a bunch of th- <laughs> a bunch of things the you know the memoir part of the book is all in the third person so it's writing about myself but as a as she rather than saying i um and there's a, a number of reasons for that and one of them had to do with like narrating periods um in which i was very ill and so the she seemed to do a better job at representing um my distance from that experience as being someone who was now well enough to write about it and use language for it, which I couldn't at the time. Right. So then the fiction is in the first person, um, even though it's, it's made up. Uh, so I guess I wanted to see what that was like and what it would do. And also to kind of maybe start to get at the fact that there's like, you know, there can't really be any conversation with, um, Sarnayev, you know, he's not accessible and the conversation with him wouldn't satisfy, you know, he doesn't, I don't think he has answers to our questions or, his own questions, um, maybe, you know, um, so the fiction part was, was sort of trying to like show that, that getting closer, you know, the closer you get, the more you're imagining, um, in a way. So I could read a little bit of that second part. I almost never do that. Maybe I'll just, um, I, I think that would be great. I would love to hear it. I mean, in essence, right. You, you show 
the kinds of knowledge that the two genres can yield the the nonfiction essay as an epistemological conduit to ask and answer questions and then at a certain point you hit a wall and you utilize the the power of fiction and the imagination to imagine yourself into proximity and conversation um, with this other person who may or may not yield what you want them to yield. That's what I was thinking. That's a nice way to put it. That's what I was kind of hoping to get at um, is to show like, um, yeah, um, I'll just read this first little bit and that'll give a sense of like its tone and the sort of things it's, it's bringing in. Um, so this is a, you know, this is a fiction um, and it's engaging with Jahar Sarnayev and referring to him as the book does throughout as the boy, right? So there's two brothers involved in the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, you know, there was a lot of discussion about their relationship and how much the older brother Tamerlan had, had influenced the younger into doing this thing. So I ended up calling them the man and the boy in order to kind of get at that. So that comes up in here, but I'll just read a little snippet. In the name of civilization, foreign governments refused to sell us the chemical needed for lethal injection. I told the boy this, the pronoun, his to judge. It was after the First World War, I added dutifully, that an excess of gas production resulted in the widespread use of the gas chamber. The boy's curls were shorn, and he was fattening. He had promised me an exclusive interview, but so far I felt as excluded as ever. His letter had been to the point. On the envelope bearing my reply, I had given my return address as 18 West 11th Street. In what at least seemed ignorance, the boy did not comment. Of course, I'd sent him my novel. Each time the lights flickered, his jumpsuit grew brighter. I blinked. In a slow loop in the windowless room, a fly droned. The fly was, we could safely conclude, a drone. Those are the ones, I said aloud, that can land on any microwave, any power line, and recharge. The fly landed on the camellia pinned to my breast. The flower was dead. Shall we begin? I said. I began. We have two pressure cookers packed with ball bearings, then the guns, and several cars. Two nylon backpacks. You might call the backpacks a double-edged blade, since they allow authorities to identify us. Ball bearings have been in use since ancient times, I said information I'd had to research, although not primarily as weapons. I was surprised, I added, at their size. There was an elbow pipe wrapped in black tape, I said, to project the photo I clicked a clicker. Blood clouded the street's rough surface, blood red and darkly clotted. Fusing elements made from toy cars. In 1921, I said, the artist announced her intention to stop painting. The bourgeois distinction between art and industry must be erased. In 1924, the artist died, nothing to do with the revolution or its aftermath. She caught scarlet fever from her infant son. The relevant principles for our discussion are tectonica, constructia, and factura. How appropriate the use of these materials with regard to their given purpose. How may we erase a bourgeois distinction? For example, I said, if you were sent to Guantanamo, you wouldn't even have to change clothes. I was wearing what you might call a romper, a coincidence the boy noted with only a nod. A nod and a smirk? The boy rubbed his injured hand. 
When he finally spoke, he narrated the course of the genocide known in the Caucasus as Operation Lentil, his tone something less than disinterested. Tens of thousands of Chechen and English had fought in the Red Army against the Nazis. Yet after the war, the Soviets condemned the whole population as collaborators. There was an insurgency. Soon half a million were deported. However many died in the roundups, the deportations, and exile. Chechen gravestones were plucked from the earth to be used in Soviet footpaths and pig pens. Town after town lost its name. Is this, I interrupted, factura? Is this story material? The boy glanced at my notes, which I had failed to conceal. In blood I had written, I can't stand to see such evil go unpunished. I'll stop there. Um, so that, you know, that passage gives a little description of, of some of the actual material reality of the bomb um, and also kind of refers to a few other things, right? One to to drone surveillance and drone warfare, you know, the, that, you know, those types of drones that can land on things and recharge. Um, and it also refers to the novel that you had, you know, they drive them through the streets, which we began by talking about and, and the address 18 West 11th street as some, um, as some people might recognize is the address, uh, of the house that, um, in, that the Weather Underground uh, blew up, you know, um, which is memorialized in a poem by James Merrill that starts in what at least seemed anger. So when I, that's the echo in that line and what at least seemed ignorance. And then the last part is discussing, you know, some of the Sarnayevs. Um, their family has roots in Chechnya and um, and the things that um, Shahar Sarnayev, he kind of written some things in blood um, on the inside of the of the boat in which he was captured. So that there's a bit of a reference to that as well. So it's sort of taking a bunch of the elements from um, this history and kind of putting them into a certain type of fiction. Can you talk a little bit about the, the experience of writing the two different modes? I think stylistically, even though I can tell they come from the same writer, what I admire about the, the first part is you get this essayistic clarity in which ideas concatenate and build um, towards illumination and further complication. I mean, you're, it's really crystalline thinking about things that you come up against the limits of what thinking can do. And then suddenly the style changes. Um, you get this really powerful and elegant fictional encounter um, so I'm just curious about the the mode of thought or the mode of making that goes into to each, and maybe you could speak to that more largely as someone who who does both nonfiction and fiction. I think that, like again, maybe a little surprisingly, the the I sections, the fiction, like what I just read. You know, that's a pretty like removed n- narrator. There's. Um, there's a kind of like coolness. Uh, I don't, I don't mean, I don't there's mean almost a noir element. I'm cool, but you know, there's a cool, yeah, there's a kind of noir, like kind of coolness to the way that their, the narration works, even though you would expect it to be like more intimate because it's in the first person, you know, and because it's narrating like a scene that's an engagement with someone rather than the first part is narrating. Um, you know, a lot of what it's doing is, is, reflecting on or gathering from reading and it's um 
you know, it's a more intellectual engagement in a way, you know, there's some stuff in there that's very personal. Um, but overall, like a lot of the types of connections or, or what it's about is, is um, more abstract and, or intellectual in a way. Um, so, but it, I think it feels a lot more intimate and feels more, um, I don't know, like more emotional. Um, and then the fiction is a little more um, noir and in one tone. So the fiction is a little bit more about form uh, in a way. So I, I think, you know, I wanted to have a turn in the book, like a kind of volta, like a moment when the book kind of draws attention to its own form and, and, and thinks about form itself for a little bit, just for a little minute at the end, you know, it's not a very long coda. Um, and things about some of the things we were talking about before, kind of about like the impossibility, the desire to know more and to know something more immediately, but the impossibility of doing that, which, which I think is what those little fiction, that little fiction is about. But, um, you know, so I, I wrote the first part of the book kind of all, um, really, mainly in the time period that it, that it says it's in, which is, you know, uh, uh, April to August, 2013. And it's really just tracking events that are happening during that time. Every now and then there's something a little bit anachronistic or a commentary that came in via revision. And I let, I let kind of slightly break that, um, uh, you know, break that arc in a way, but it's, but it's very minor. So for the most part, it's, it's sort of belongs to that time. And then, I just wanted there to be, you know, some kind of, right, some kind of turn. And I spent a long time trying to figure out, you know, what I, I, I wrote a lot of versions of, of that second small fictional part. Um, and they were, you know, the, for being something small and, and kind of playful, they were, <laughs> of course, extremely difficult. Um, uh, you know, it took me a long time to find um, a version of that that seemed like it offered enough while still being kind of contained and playful in a way um, and had something to say about form. So that's what I hope the second part does. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, that makes, that makes perfect sense. And it, it's an extremely powerful moment after the arc um, of the, the major essayistic portion of, of the book. Um, and perhaps maybe as a way of, of talking about, how Strawberry Fields fits into this sort of three books belonging together. I won't call them a trilogy. Um, but if we could do a kind of timeline. So on March 12th of 2013, They Drag Them Through the Streets comes out. A month later, April 15th, is the the Boston Marathon bombing. The first part of your book starts in April 2013. Um the opening scene, there you are in the waiting room while your husband is being operated on and on the television is the manhunt taking place, if I remember correctly. And that goes through August 2013. Then there's this fictional turn. Then there's a very tiny third part, mm -hmm. March 2015, open-ended. And then just last year, you had a new novel come out. So so what comes what comes after this interview? What kind of thinking, creating? Um, and I ask this knowing that you're someone who's very interested in activist literature um, and in and in fiction that helps us think through our moment. 
Oh gosh, I feel like there's so many, <laughs> so many things to say. <laughs> Did I ask um, you an impossible question? <laughs> no, it's um, it's nice. I should ask myself more impossible questions uh, <laughs> um, every morning in this way. Uh, I, you know, I, I was thinking just at the end of my answer to the last question that like the nice thing about fiction and the reason that it is has that possibility for coolness or something is that you're in. I write, you know, fiction, nonfiction, and I, and I sometimes write poetry. And I feel like fiction is the most sort of authoritarian, like you're in the most control, you get to choose everything, because an essay keeps answering back to to, to the world. Um, and, and Watchfires is really like, built following like what was going on in the news. So, um, so that's kind of one beginning of an answer. Um, and that's related to the way Watchfires ends, which, um, as you know, it, it ends, you know, it, it starts off in a waiting room as my husband is having a cancer surgery. And then it ends two years later with a, meta- a diagnosis of a metastasis of that same cancer. So the cancer has returned and the book just ends on that note, which is kind of the state that I, that I was in, that we were in at that time. So it's a very open-ended um, way to end a book. And, and that it, one reason for that is, is part of what I referred to earlier of wanting to, um, make in watchfires, uh, add to the body of alternative illness memoirs or illness memoirs that, you know, illness memoirs have a lot of, um, they have a tendency to have this sort of redemptive arc, right. Where there's the period of great suffering and then something is arrived into, um, whether it's healing or overcoming the illness, or it's a kind of redemptive wisdom, right? Like it's something that has been learned or gained. Um, and I wanted a book that wrote about illness and didn't do that because to me that felt very untrue to the experience um, and to kind of grappling with the time of illness. Like that time is so, um, I mean, what do you do with it? You know, you, you spend hours and hours and days and days and months and years um, in a sort of time that was couldn't really be used, had to just be sort of existed in. Um, and uh, there's a lot of ways to think and talk about that. But, um, and for people who are interested in it, there's a really beautiful book about illness narratives um, and how, how we can think about their structure and what they're doing and sort of like what we owe to them as listeners uh, um, called The Wounded Storyteller by Arthur Frank. So and I like to recommend that because I think it does such a good job of thinking about those things. Um, I, I read it way after writing this book. So I guess <laughs> I can like try to imagine what I'd have learned if I'd read it before. But, um, but all of that is maybe the easier part of your question, which is to do with like craft or form. Um, and, and not quite, um, like what's the question about sort of activism or how is literature activism is or is not, uh, in what ways, like what sort of work can literature do? Um, I was thinking about this earlier this year and sort of finding myself a bit like, like I think that I thought when I was writing these three books, you know, which I wrote, as you know, kind of between 2007, I started that first novel, then um, Strawberry Fields, I actually wrote, I wrote second, even though it was published third, I wrote it largely between 2011 and and 2013. And it's dealing with kind of a lot of overlapping events um, that were happening at, at that time. And then writing Watchfires, um, I, I sort of feel surprised. I think I thought when I was writing those books that I would answer that question for myself and kind of understand in what way, like what are the connections between literature and activism? Is literature a form of activism? What would that mean? What sort of work can literature do in the culture? And I don't, you know, I'm sort of like surprised to not know, <laughs> not have an answer. You know, I thought maybe I would learn the answer to that by, by 
writing the books and I don't, I don't necessarily feel that I did, you know, um, and in part, maybe that's because books live a life that's kind of, um, you know, once they're published, they sort of belong to readers and they're, and they're kind of not yours anymore um, in the same way. So you don't really, you, you, it feels limited as to what you know about the work that they're doing. And that work is, uh, you know, it's happening in the mysterious way of reading, you know, the way that um, reading like changes us entirely, but we can't really necessarily say how. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't quite have an answer to that, but, um, but I really, yeah, I think it's a great question. It's a question, um, you know, I teach now that's my, that's my job. Um, I teach at Cleveland state university and, you know, that's the question understandably that, you know, so many students have of sort of like what, um, you know, what's the role of the writer? What, what, what can literature offer in response to things that are happening now or in response to things we can't even sort of think of or imagine yet? Or, and I don't, I don't really have an answer other than like a, maybe like trying to be a good companion to, to them as they ask that question and be helpful in it. Um, and so I guess that's about as far as I've gotten. Some of the work you do sort of in American letters and in international letters is reviewing um, so you have a, a robust life as a, a reader as well as a writer. I'm wondering if, if in our moment there are books or authors where you see a glimmer of, of this is what I'm hoping for from the, the activist novel, or this is what I'm hoping for from the essayist, um, perhaps people you point your students to. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've worked for much of my, I guess for, for about 15 years at this point in various forms of, um, independent publishing, uh, sometimes in academic publishing, um, you know, doing a lot of editorial work at different presses and journals. And that's part of my work now is to work at the CSU Poetry Center. So that sense of, um, you know, helping, you know, helping writers works take shape and find readers and also writing book reviews in order to like help receive a book, right? Like, um, and, and try to like think about it publicly and hope that that's helpful to people, right? Um, not just in relation right to that particular book, but, um, and trying to like do, (laughs) do a little work of articulating, like what are some things that are happening now? Um, and, what do they mean? What could they mean if we really pursued them and took them seriously as readers? I try to do all that, although, you know, it always seems incomplete. In terms of like writers that I direct um, people to, you know, of course, it's like, again, when one feels a sense of incompleteness, because like anyone, um, anyone, well, sure, any sure. List, yeah. you're going to say one and not say the 17 others. And, <laughs> I know. Yes. And then you're like, oh, no. Like what have I left off to one person that was so essential for someone? Let to me go back. back. Um, yeah, I guess rather than putting you in a dilemma like that, I'm just curious if somebody came to you and said, "What do you want to see in activist literature right now? What book would you want to have come across your desk? What What's the book that needs to be written?" I mean, Maybe that's that- an equally impossible question. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I feel very hungry for books that help me think about um, attention, like, which, you know, you can maybe 
can see where that comes out of like, I've been thinking a lot about literature as a, as a practice of attention and sort of what I was trying to do with attention in my first three books and what I should try to do next. Like, what didn't I, like, what didn't I manage? And I wrote an essay about this sort of in relation in particular to literature um, and the remembering and forgetting of the Iraq war that was in the Brooklyn rail. And it kind of talks through a few different works by um, Atel Adnan and Claudia Rankin and Peter Dimmick um, and a few other, or a number of other contemporary writers. So that might be like one kind of way that I've tried to think about that. Um, and, and I've found myself a lot, you know, recently returning a lot to a Teledon's 1989 book, the Arab apocalypse, um, which remains sort of, I don't know, like very potent and powerful and exciting and um, kind of impossible to answer to. Um, in terms of like other more recent works, I just feel really like, I don't know, like I feel very hungry for, and I feel like I come across this hunger and other readers for work that's helping us um, know how to like think questions of climate crisis and, um, you know, <laughs> like what the hell is going to happen and, and how do we think about this, um, this kind of brink that we seem to be in that's also going to manifest um, maybe through many small events rather than a big event. Um, and and I, I spent a lot of time with the work of Royce Granton, um, the essayist and novelist who thinks a lot about that. And I spent a lot of time looking for and returning to different types of novels that are using maybe some kinds of documentary material in them that kind of pull that material right into the novel and maybe become a place where it's archived or a place where we have to practice like our attention to it and, and learning how to read it and, and <laughs> thinking about the small, the small self and the subjectivity that novels are so great at rendering in relation to um, the vastness and often like unthinkability of that historical material. So, and and some novels I often am talking about when I think about that are like Peter Dimmick's um, George Anderson Notes for a Love Song in Imperial Time, and but you could also think about like you know other works from you know a few decades prior to that like Teresa Hopkins Jaws Dictae or you know um a lot of things that are helping us think about that kind of grappling and attention um which you know helps us think about responsibility <laughs> in a lot of ways and and what what should we be responsible for and how to think of how to frame that question in a way that's looking forward right um so those are some of the the thoughts I bring to that and maybe like summarizing that answer is to say that I think that, you know, form is a big part of that. Um, and the works that I find exciting are like, are making the form of the novel kind of ask questions about, um, attention and, and selfhood or, you know, whether it's a novel, maybe it's an essay or a poem, but, but that that's very active, right? Like, um, they're not sort of taking the form for granted or relying on its conventions in those ways. Like you feel that kind of activation and questioning of the form that's happening in order to try to get us to question our attention to um, experience or, you know, current moments in history or to sort of received, you know, received forms of knowledge, whether or language, whether, you know, their journalism or, you know, various rhetorics that were buried in. So, yeah, I don't know. To me that, that also what you've just observed strikes me as a a very apt defense of 
experimentation and form because you yield all of those possibilities of you know possibilities for attention possibilities for different kinds of knowledge and knowing possibilities for the entrance of new information or experience into our narratives um so i just wanted to to kind of show the other possibility in that answer um could you could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Would you mind sharing your a project you might be working on or or something you're thinking about? In addition, that's that's a ridiculous question because you just told us what you were thinking about. But could you tell us what you're working on? I guess like the other thing that I didn't totally mention, but I want a novel to do, and particularly because I don't know how to do it, so I'd like <laughs> if someone's <laughs> taking assignments for what they should do is is to help us think about the fragmentation, these fragmentations of attention, um, and kind of like reification of attention to these tiny pieces and, and it's monetization that we're seeing in the social media age. And, and I think, again, Peter Dimmick is, is a writer that I immediately think of in there and there are other writers, but, um, that's something that I want, you know, the novel hasn't, how does the novel take in, you know, attention and the so-called social media age or things like that. So, um, in terms of what I am writing, am I doing that? Uh, what I just said, I, <laughs> I don't think exactly. I've been trying to, um, in in a few different pieces, write some write in a way that that reflects on um, correspondence. You know, sort of um, those types of mutual, collective, you know, or shared language or back and forth things of language that happen in correspondence and that aren't about um, that are such intensive acts of you know, writing and thinking and, um, like a literary work that's collectively made, you know, um, but that isn't necessarily like a text, like it's not to be published really. Um, you know, and, and I've been trying to think about like, what, <laughs> what is that? Um, and, and what is its relationship to, um, the literature that we publish? Um, and that makes me, you know, that's related to thoughts about editing and editing as such a, um, really collaborative work and, uh, in a collaborative mode of literature, you know, and, and like as a relationship between writing and reading in which those, those, um, those lines start to dissolve and people feel, I think, very anxious or suspicious about that because so much of what, what we worry about is that editing is intruding or imposing or, um, shaping something toward a market or, or interfering with a writer's vision. But like the, the most kind of sublime versions of it are really about, uh, a kind of, um, very intimate collaboration between a writer and a reader. Uh, so I, I've been trying to think about some things like that and those maybe get into some form questions because they have to do with like the rapid speed at which our correspondence takes place these days, right? Um, how much back and forth we can have and, and how much speech we can exchange with people all over the world. So I think that's showing up in some different projects. Um, I worked as a long time for an editor of literature and translation, and I've been trying um, to write a long essay kind of about reading um, literature and translation, particularly reading the long poem Mural by the Palestinian poet um, Mahmoud Darwish, um, and trying to think about that position of being sort of an inexpert reader or a reader like for whom a translation is intended, who, who can't read the original. Um, there's three very beautiful translations of that long poem in English. So it's also about the kind of like inexhaustibility of, of having multiple translations and the inexhaustibility of differences. And that that's a kind of 
I don't know, like a form of like love for a work that it, that it can never end that way. Um, and that that's something that maybe translation can offer a very particular form of. I'll, I'm in the midst of a bunch of things, all of which like are <laughs> need more work, you know? <laughs> so yeah, well, who knows which one of them will ever exist in the world. Yeah. So. I, I love the idea of, of translation itself as an act of, love and response. It also seems to me that thinking about correspondence or thinking about translation are are both different ways of thinking up, thinking through that blurred boundary between self and other, um, because these exist in between author and translator, between two languages, between the two correspondents who are creating something that is of them, but greater than them. Um, Hilary Plum, thank you for your time and for being on the New Books Network. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you for inviting me and for your questions. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Hilary Plum, author of Watch Fires on the New Books Network.